All right, we're going to pick up tonight. We'll be starting in Genesis. About halfway through chapter 30 in verse 25. At this point, Jacob's been living in the household of Laban for at least 14 years. Over the course of that, he's garnered 12 children, 11 boys and one girl, as well as four wives, specifically two wives, Leah and her younger son, Rachel, and two concubines, uh, Zilpah and Bilhah. And so he has this large family. Um, as you can imagine, he's somewhat homesick. He's finally fulfilled his contractual obligations. If you remember the second half of those 14 years was unexpected. It was unplanned. The only one who planned for that was Laban, and he's deceptively kept Jacob around. And so at this point, Jacob attempts to leave. Verse 25, as soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, if I found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Now, just as an aside, we once again see an outsider recognizing God's blessing on the life of one of the patriarchs. This has been a repeated refrain in the life of Abraham, especially in the life of Isaac. Laban sees it now, uh, and he says in verse 28, Name your wages, and I will give it. And Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I have served you, and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now, uh, when shall I provide for my own household also? Okay, now the first thing that you have to notice here is that Laban isn't giving any handouts. Despite the fact that this is his daughters and their grandchildren, when Jacob says to be sent away, Laban doesn't offer to send them out with anything. Instead, he says, well, what would you like to work for me for, right? What he's looking for is a new and fresh contract, this time for the sake of livestock. Now, Jacob and his family need this to survive, but also Jacob's got to kind of redeem all of the labor as well. And here we discover that Jacob has a plan. He's anticipated that Laban is going to respond in this way. And so he says, actually, since you asked, how you can fill out the check. Here's what I'd like you to do, and this is what he says. He says, what shall I give you, Jacob said, you shall not give me anything if you do this for me. I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So honesty will answer for me later when you come and look into my wages with you. Everyone that's not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lamb, lambs, if found with me, shall be counted as stolen. And so Jacob's plan, he says, let me divide all of your holdings, all of your lambs and sheep and goats, and all the ones that are miscolored, all the ones that aren't solid brown in the case of sheep or solid white or solid black in the case of goats, any that are spotted or speckled, or, or modeled in their, uh, in their um, wool, uh, I will take as my wages, okay? Now, statistically, we're talking about a relatively small group. 
Um, it's, a, it's not just a fair wage, it's a compelling one, okay? But as I said, Jacob has a plan, okay? And so Laban takes the bait and he says, um, verse 34, Laban said, good, let it be as you have said. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black and put them in charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. There's two possibilities here. Either, despite the fact that how Jacob pitches this is that you're going to give me the initial investment of spotted and speckled as they exist, that very small percentage, and I'll grow a flock out of that, and whatever's spotted and speckled is mine, whatever's not is yours, it's possible here that what Laban says is, yeah, that's great, and then he quietly removes all of them. And so Jacob starts here with zero, with only plain and normal sheep, and all the other ones have been conveniently passed on to Laban's other sons. So if this is right, then Jacob shows up for work the next day, and all he has is not his. Okay? I would say that's the most likely and plain reading of the text, but there is another possibility here. The other possibility is that, uh, that this is Jacob's flock, but he gives it to his sons so that Jacob can't breed with it. And he says, I'll reserve these for you. You continue to watch over my flock, but he basically removes the breeding potential, and all he leaves behind um, is, is his own sheep and goats. So, um, verse 36, he said, a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. In other words, they're isolated. Verse 37, Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almonds and plain trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the whites of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred, when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of all the flocks towards the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. Okay, let's pause there. We'll come back to verse 40 in a second. We see here that in some way, he takes these branches of plants, he peels stripes in them, and then he places them either in, we'll get to this in a second, or near the troughs where the sheep are watered. And the consequence of this is more spotted, speckled, and striped sheep. Okay? Now, this is a challenging thing to understand, and it is full of interpretations throughout history ranging from we really have no idea what this practice is because, uh, because it's ancient enough that there's no memory of it, even in the earliest interpretations of Genesis, to he's engaging in a well-known mystical or magical practice. Okay? Now, that second one can't be denied out, out of hand because if you'll remember, in uh, just a chapter ago, it, we found uh, Rachel believing that mandrakes had not just aphrodetic, but also fertility properties. However, however, uh, for one, just to put this to rest, we'll find when this all comes together that God is working despite or beyond or on top of what's going on here. We'll see that later. Um, but there's another thing. Although we are aware of these magical property ideas that come down to this in later literature, Whatever you see right before you conceive impacts what you have, okay? So we can find legends of women who were at spa days 
uh, and return uh, and on the way find a dog and see a dog and then have an ugly dog-faced baby, okay? There's lots of literature like that. But it's tremendously different than what we see here, okay? This doesn't involve dog-faced babies breeding dog-faced sheep. It involves plants being seen to be striped and creating stripes. Not only that, but all of that literature that I just mentioned post-dates what we're talking about by hundreds of years, okay? Despite the fact that we have lots and lots of fertility, ritualistic, magical texts from this time, okay? But none of them talk in this way, okay? Um, so we're left to go, well, what's going on here? And what we can see very clearly is that Jacob is intentional, that he does something with these plants, and that the consequence of it is he, he gets a way better yield of his earnings, the spotted, speckled, and striped, than expected, okay? Um, in fact, it's going to upset Laban pretty deeply. He's going to feel full-fledged robbed. Now, there is a really interesting article that Richard sent me um, by none other than a University of Washington professor about this chapter. And what he's done is looked at this using and understanding modern practices of sheep breeding and how it may impact the reading. And let me add that this guy is not a sheep breeder. That's not the school he comes from. He's a Near Eastern language and culture professor. And so a good deal of what he does in the article is actually help us to understand some of the more rare words in this passage. This is what he argues. He argues that these sticks are not being used as an aphrodisiac or as some sort of visible stimulus, but are actually being used as stand-in fake sheep, okay? See, here's the thing, okay? In modern sheep practicing, how do you know when the female sheep are ready to be bred? How do you know when they're fertile, okay? They use these testing sticks, which effectively, when they start to be affectionate with these testing sticks, they know that it's the proper season. And so what he says here is that Jacob is utilizing that same practice to basically make sure that they're being taken care of without without any sort of insemination. And so the idea here is not, uh, is not that he is magically producing the spotted and speckled, but actually that he's only allowing the spotted and speckled to produce, okay? And as I mentioned earlier, for this to be the case, this implies that Laban left some spotted and speckled with him, but it wasn't Jacob's spotted and speckled, okay? It was Laban's spotted and speckled but he only breeds with those to breed up a new collection of Jacob's spotted and speckled, okay? So it's an interesting possibility. I actually think the article reads pretty impressively, but if you want to read it and you won't have a hard time finding it, uh, you will have to wade through it. But I, I, I would say that his argument is strong enough that it's more compelling than the magic argument, and it's more compelling than the Jacob's just being crazy and God did something anyways, okay? Remember here, Jacob is an expert shepherd. He's been at this for a long time. He's the one who's out with his sheep. His wife is an expert shepherd. Remember, he met her at the well in that way. Um, and so, verse 40, Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flock towards the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flocks were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there, so the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Okay. 
Um, so what we see here is it says that he, it looks like in the text in English that he took the, um, the black and white and lined them up and you almost assume that it'd be striped and set them in front of the breeding sheep. It sounds like a similar idea. Once again, what this article says is it's more likely here that he just bumped them up in the roster so they were the primary ones in front of the breedable sheep. Okay? They were the prime candidate because they were in eye view. Okay? So basically all he's doing is arranging the sheep in such a way that the right ones are breeding. Okay? As a side note, this is exactly how we think of breeding in general. right? The whole idea of a stud is that you find a horse with attractive traits and you breed it to get those attractive traits. Whatever is going on here, the principle is the same. But effectively, um, it also points out here that he bred in such a way that Laban was getting all of the feeble sheep to breed, or uh, he was breeding all the feeble sheep as Laban's byproduct, and when they were strong, he was breeding the strong ones for himself. Um, specifically, what it says here is that, um, that effectively, whenever the strong wanted to breed, he used the sticks, so they didn't breed at all. So all of the consequence of the non-spotted and speckled were just weaklings, okay? Now, let's just be honest. This is insult plus injury, is it not? This doesn't affect his wages at all. It just makes the condition of Laban's farm worse, okay? This is Jacob trying to get back for 14 years of abuse, okay? And remember, he has the advantage of being able to do this all privately because they've separated the flocks. So at, at first, nobody notices what's going on as what happens is all of these spotted and speckled in larger numbers than expected because of his intentional breeding are becoming the wages of Jacob and um, all the ones that are not Jacob's are being the feeble ones or the only ones allowed to breed. So all of the offspring are from a weaker stock, okay? So, verse 43, thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants, and camels and donkeys. Now Jacob heard, chapter 31, that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has gained all this wealth. Okay, after a while it just becomes plain noticeable. Like, outside of the Belgraph, statistical anomaly, What's going on here is not right. And his sons, Laban's sons, see this and they're grumbling about it. They're complaining about it. Why? Because what happens to Laban's wealth when Laban's gone? It's theirs, right? Jacob is messing with their inheritance. This outlier, this guy who came from nowhere and in Laban's ideas stole my daughters, in their case stole my sisters, right, is now walking off with our wealth as well. And so, verse 2, Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before, okay? Which, once again, I don't think is a surprise. He sees that Laban's noticing what's going on, is recognizing that maybe for the first time, it's Jacob who has the advantage. It's Jacob who's going to win, and Laban's not used to that. He doesn't like that. One last intriguing thing to this whole breeding thing that's really fascinating, the stronger and the weaker... Those two words, that's Rachel's name and Leah's name. Rachel's name means strong, Leah means weak-eyed, right? And so here we're watching as, as with the flocks, Jacob reverses the deception that was carried out on him. And so Laban is expecting the stronger and he gets the weaker instead, okay? 
And so Jacob goes, okay, this is as, as far as this long con is going to go. It's time to get out of Dodge. Verse 2, Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. And the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I served your father with all my strength, yet your father cheated me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. If he said the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted, and if he said the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. So he gives us more detail here. He says that the contract was constantly evolving. Laban was doing his best to uh, mitigate the damage. But even still, the breeding always lined up in such a way that Laban got the favor. Now, I want you to notice that what Jacob is doing here is making an argument to his wives on why they should leave. Once again, that points to what we've already seen. His relationship with his wives is not that great. In his mind is at least the possibility that if he tries to leave, they're going to stay. And so he's trying to make a case. So he reminds them that he's been faithfully serving Laban. And then verse 10, in the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. And the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the, uh, with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. Now, once again here, we get a little bit of explanation that we didn't have before. He accredits this whole plan or its successfulness, it's a little hard to tell, right? It could be that this gave him the idea for his plan, or it could be that he knew that this is how it was going to turn out um, because of this dream, but he saw this in advance. Verse 11, uh, sorry, verse 13. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Okay, and so they're on board because Laban is Laban. And what they say is, look, he wasn't going to give us a fair share, right? We know that Rachel in particular watched over the flocks just like her brothers, but she looks forward and she goes, The sheep that Laban has left, they're not coming my way. When she mentions portion here, she's referring to the dowry. Okay. Now, here's something you have to understand about the way that a dowry worked, which is different than a bridal price. A dowry was money that was given to the family in case the marriage went sideways so that the wife, now ex-wife or widow, would be supported without her husband. What she, what, he says, what she says here is that he's already gobbled that up, right? Why? Because Jacob worked for his bride, and it was all to Laban's advantage, not to theirs, right? There was no bridal price except for the years of labor, okay? And so they see Laban for as he truly is. Um, verse 15, are we not regarded by him as foreigners, for he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. And so not only do they see him as taking advantage economically of them, falling short of what a father should be, but he also recognizes that the way the marriage went was a little bit like prostitution. Right? You can especially, I think, imagine those words in the mouth of Leah. She's longed to be loved by her husband, but it doesn't change the fact that her marriage was just an advantage for Laban. He just took advantage of his deception and used Leah, uh, Leah as the pawn, 
to make it happen. And so they say these things, verse 15, uh, 16, all the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, do whatever God has said to you to do. In other words, we agree with you. Your actions are just. We see God's plan in this. We will go with you. Verse 17, Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels, and he drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padan Aram to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole his father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban, the, Arme uh, the Aramean, by not telling him he intended to flee. Okay, so we see a few things happen here. We see that Laban and his sons go off during the time of shearing, okay, which they would have done in a particular place with all sorts of other shepherds with flocks, and it would have been a distance. Okay? So he leaves while the leaving's good, while there's a window where Laban can't see, so that they can make some headway before he returns and discover they're gone. Um, related to that, it also says here that Rachel stole her father's household gods. Okay? This is during the same time she slips into Laban's tent and she takes what the, uh, what the text here calls his, uh, his terebim. Okay? Uh, the terebim we know, just by usage of the word in the Old Testament, had something to do with divination, had something to do with predicting the future, which is something that Laban already said that he had made use of. Um, the reason we translate it household gods is because it seems that what we're talking about here is specifically an idol, or possibly some argue some sort of ancestor worship is going on here. Um, but either way, it just adds here that Rachel takes them. Okay, that'll become important later, but it also shows us, in some sense, the spiritual state of Rachel. Okay? She may believe in the God of Jacob, but that's not the only God she believes in. And whether she's trying to stop her dad from divination to give them a little bit of a head start, or some believe that she knows that these things have to do with the inheritance, that he who has the terebim has you know, the rights to the property, and so she takes these so that they have an in-court justifiable reason, uh, or, or if she's actually attached to these household gods. And the problem with idolatry is when you leave, you have to take your gods with you. Whatever's going on here, it's going to become a, pl a place of contention, not just in the fact that she's stolen these relatively important artifacts from her father, but also in the fact that this idea of how the universe runs still continues, as we'll see. So they run, and notice it says that Rachel stole her father's household gods. When it says that Jacob tricked Laban, it's literally Hebrew, and Jacob stole his heart. Okay? which is the only place in the whole Bible it's used, and so tricked is probably the idea here, um, but it's one of deception. So he fled with all that he had. He arose, he crossed the Euphrates, and set his face towards the hill country of Gilead when it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled. So they get a three-day head start. He took his kinsmen with him and pursued them for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. Okay, so three-day head start, seven days, he finally starts to catch up. But, verse 24, God came to Laban the Arminian in a dream by night, saying to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And so God stops Laban the day before this confrontation and just says, Watch yourself. Okay? When he says here, don't say anything good or bad, he's not saying keep your mouth shut. He's saying, I'm with Jacob. 
watch how you talk to him. Okay, it's very similar, right, to the dreams that um, uh, that we saw happen uh, in the land of Goshen um, with uh, Abimelech, right? This dream in the night that promises the danger uh, that this foreigner is in and the protection of God's people. So, with that happening, then they have this confrontation. Verse 25, Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pinched his tent in the hill hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Now notice the accusation there. He says, Jacob, you're a kidnapper. You've taken by force my children. He continues here, uh, verse 27, why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs and with tambourine and lyre? Liar is probably the key word there. Verse 28, why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. And so he says, you've behaved so badly, I'd be justified in forcefully taking my family back. Okay? But notice that this is all posturing. Okay? Not only is this a very skewed presentation, but he has no teeth. Right? He's about, as he's about to point out, there's nothing he can do. Why? He says, because, verse, uh, uh, verse 29, halfway through, but the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. In other words, he says, God promised to protect you, and I want you to know that that's the only reason this hasn't gotten physical. Okay? He continues on. Um, he says all these things, verse 30, and now you've gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house, but why did you steal my gods? Okay, and so he adds this last one, and it's hard to tell if this is the final criticism, if it's the final piece of evidence, like he's been saving it for the trial. This would be a big deal in this time and culture. Or if he really doesn't understand this aspect of Jacob's plan. Okay, for one... What is Jacob, or sorry, what is Laban really after here? At best, it's wealth, okay? It's not his daughters who he longs to kiss. It's not his grandchildren who he really cares about. But it may actually be that the only reason he's followed is because these gods are that important to him, right? Because they serve Laban. But either way, he says, why did you steal my gods? Now remember, Jacob has no idea what Rachel has done. And so he responds in verse 31. Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your God shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what, I've done, what I have that's yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. And so he says, you want to know why I left in the middle of the night? Because I was afraid of you using force. You say that I've taken them away by force, but you're the one who would have held us there against their will. Okay? And then he says, and as for your gods, nobody has that. He says, you can search your tents. Anyone you find it with will die. Okay? Verse 33, so Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and in the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. Notice here he's going down the likely suspect list, okay? And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. And Laban felt about all the tent. Does that seem like a weird turn of phrase? 
Laban felt about all the tent. That's the same word for Isaac feeling Jacob to see if he was Jacob or Esau. It's the same word. He felt him. It seems to be intentional here. We're, we're seeing things come full circle, but this time it's Laban's daughter deceiving him and not Isaac's son, Jacob, deceiving him. Verse 35, she said to her father, let my Lord not be angry that I cannot rise before you for the way of woman is upon me. So he searched but did not find the household gods. She says, I'm not, I'm not gonna get up because I'm on my period, but she's actually sitting on the saddle and beneath the saddle is the gods he's looking for and this is enough to keep Laban from finding them. Just because I know the authors of scripture, the fact that they're pointing out that she, in her menstruation, is sitting on Laban's gods is intentionally funny, okay? It's defiling. It's exactly where these things belong, okay? Um, but nonetheless, the deception is pulled off, the tension is gone, Laban finds nothing, and Jacob takes advantage of the situation. Verse 36, Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you felt through all my goods. What have you found of your household goods? Set it here before your kinsmen and my kinsmen that they may decide between us two. He's finally going to speak his mind and he's doing it with witnesses. Verse 38, these 20 years I have been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried. I've not eaten the rams of your flock. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss myself from my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. All of these things he's listing here are probably standard practice in the shepherding industry, right? You're not responsible for sheep that get stolen at night, okay? Stolen in the day, you should stand your ground. You should stop that theft from happening. Uh, miscarriage is just what we would call in insurance terms an act of God, right? It's just something that nature does. And yet any ram that miscarried was compensated. It was seen as um, Jacob's incompetence. So he says, you didn't treat me fairly. Verse 40, there I was by day the heat consumed me and cold by the night. My sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I've been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six for your flock. And you have changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty handed. God saw my affliction in the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. So Jacob finally says all these things that he's probably been thinking about for a long time. And the argument he makes is, I'm in the right. God has compensated me for your mistreatment of me for years and years. Verse 43, Laban answered and said to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flock. And all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day? For these are my daughters or for their children whom they have born. And so he still says, look, it's all mine, buddy but these are the kids that I love, right? He's, he's trying to put himself in a good light. Uh, and so he continues here, verse 44. Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. Okay, and so he says, all right, let's call it a draw. Let's just draw a line in the sand, make an agreement of non-aggression, and go our separate ways, which in a relationship like one with Jacob and Laban is probably the best that you can ask for. And so Jacob agrees. Verse 45, Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. We've seen that 
multiple times now. We're going to see it again. Remember, he set up a pillar in Bethel uh, when he met with the Lord, and here he has another memorial stone, another pillar marking a moment in his life. Uh, And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones, and they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. And Laban called it Jagar Shadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Now, it's a little bit hard to know why there's a pillar and a heap. I'll just give you my personal opinion. They want this border to be seen from a distance. Okay, we'll see this in just a second. And so the heap is big enough so that even if you're a little bit north or a little bit south of this east-west going border, you'll see where the boundary line runs, okay? Because it's not just a memorial, it's a boundary, it's a border. Um, And so they do this, they eat together, which is a part of the covenant process. I imagine that was not a fun meal. Verse 48, Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today, therefore he named it Galid. And Mizpah, for he said, the Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. Okay? That, by the way, is not a positive phrase. It's a negative one. He's saying, may God control this border, and if either of us crosses it with malintent, let God hold him accountable. Okay? May he be a watchtower between me and you. May he be a fence. Okay? And then he adds here, verse 50, if you oppress my daughters or if you take, my wi- take wives beside my daughters, although no one uh, is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. And so he says here, don't even think about taking more wives, which is ironic, is it not? Because who put Jacob in a polygamous situation? Laban did, right? But, verse 51, Laban said to Jacob, see this heap and pillar which I've set between you and me. This heap is a witness, and this pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their fathers, judge between us. Notice there that by saying it in this way, he doesn't say the God of Abraham and Nahor and the God of their fathers. He lists them separately. Even Laban's understanding of this religion is a little bit skewed. He just assumes that earlier when Jacob referred to the God of his father and the fear of Isaac, that that was a pantheon of gods. Okay? But he says, those guys watch over you. Uh, so... Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. Now, I do think it's really interesting here that it says that he did this in the fear of his father Isaac. And that same term was used a little bit earlier on. Um, Clearly here, Jacob is thinking about these occasions where God protected Isaac from the foreigners in the land. That's what it means, the fear of his father Isaac, the ones who created fear in the surrounding, those who might be the enemies of Israel. But I also want you to notice that there's a little bit of distance in that recognition. That this isn't directly and fully my God, it's the fear of my father, okay? There's a distance here. And that coincides with Jacob's life. You cannot read the story of Jacob's life to this point and see him having any sort of an intimate relationship with God or even a really solid expression of God. We never see, unlike Isaac, we never see Jacob seeking God or praying to God. We see God just miraculously and surprisingly talking to a guy like Jacob. Okay, but even there, I think it implies some distance. Nonetheless, Jacob offers a sacrifice in the hill country, called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban uh, departed and returned home. Jacob, chapter 32, went on his way, and the angels of God met him. 
And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called that place Mahanaim. Okay. Now, Mahanaim means two camps. And so what the text says here is that as Jacob comes back into the land of Israel, he looks and he sees a second set of tents. But this isn't Laban's people, it's angels. Okay? It's kind of a weird thing to just put here. But the name, Mahanaim, helps us to understand what it means to Jacob. Okay? He recognizes that he's not alone. And interestingly enough, this appearance of angels and the Bethel experience bookend the Laban adventures, right? And so as he's leaving the land and fleeing to the country of his fathers, Laban, um, he sees the angels of God ascending and descending on the ladder. He has that vision. And now as he comes back into the land, he sees angels again. Now, I think it would be an overinterpretation to say that this is because he's walked back into, quote, God's country, where angels are active and present. But the idea is the same. It's that in, there's a very clear sense where Jacob has been distant from the things of God. And everything that's happened to Jacob in the last few chapters, like I said, God is around and he interacts in, but he's not actively and presently involved. Even when we read that God has blessed Jacob, we kind of wince reading it, right? Because what does that blessing look like? It's looked like a total mess, okay? And so it'd be better to read it even still, God had blessed Jacob. But nonetheless, walking back into Israel, he's arriving back into the plan. There's one sense that's really important that Jacob's life as we read it here is not a detour. Okay? This is not a surprise to God. God doesn't lay aside the manual for his plan for saving human, or planet Earth and just go, well, I'm just going to wait till Jacob gets back. Right? This is clearly part of the plan, and it's these players these 12 sons from mixed and messed up marriages that become the next phase of the plan, as intended, that become the 12 tribes of Israel. But there's another sense where it's completely accurate and appropriate to see this as a detour. That God's plan for Jacob was to give him the blessing and the inheritance, and it's when he tried to take it for himself and deceive his father that it started this whole progression of events uh, that are a total mess, that are direct consequences of those things. That may not seem important to you now, but it will be important next chapter, I promise you. Uh, I guess in two chapters from now. So, um, so back to chapter 32. He sees this thing. He says, oh, I'm not alone anymore. God is present here. There's his angels. Verse 3, Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, in the country of Edom, instructing them, saying, thus so you say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I've sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I've sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And so he knows that coming back into the land, sooner or later he's going to have to face Esau. But I want you to recognize the tension here. He's got no going back behind him and his brother who promised to murder him the next time he sees him in front of him. This is the scenario that Jacob's in, okay? And so what does he think? He goes, okay, I have to appease Esau. So he doesn't wait for Esau to find out that he's come. He sends messengers, and he sends the messengers, and they say, look, while I've been with Laban, I've been tremendously blessed. In other words, I don't need Isaac's inheritance anymore, right? You see how he's stepping around the issue, and he's saying, I'm independently wealthy, 
What came between us doesn't have to come between us anymore. And he continues. Um, notice, though, on his list what's missing. He doesn't mention his wife and children. Wives, plural, excuse me, and children. Um, and so what does he say? He says, I've sent to tell my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. Do you notice the language? Esau is Lord, Jacob is servant. Continues verse 6, the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he's coming to meet you and there are 400 men with him. Okay, what information is missing there? We have no idea how Esau feels. We're left to interpret along with Jacob what it means that he's coming with 400 men. That's either a really big coming home party or an army, right? And at this point, we don't know, and neither does Jacob, okay? So, verse 7, Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, Mahanaim again, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. So he's already coming up with an emergency plan, and his emergency plan is, I'm only going to lose half of this. Okay, so we're going to split the camps so that if they take the one, the other can get away. And, verse 9, Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan and now I've become two camps. He says, I had a stick. That was all I had when I went in, and now I have enough that I can divide it into two groups. Verse 11, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for a multitude. To be honest, this is a great prayer. In fact, it's the longest prayer recorded in the book of Genesis. And it's, pretty, it's a pretty good paradigm. What does he say? He says, God, you have been faithful and I've been faithless. God, I am afraid and you can save me. God, keep the promises that you've given me. When you look at the rest of the prayers in the Bible, this is line for line the format that we constantly find. Okay? It really is a perfect prayer. And it's the first time we really see any positive view of God and any humble view of Jacob. What is he asking for simply here? Help. When have we ever seen Jacob ask for help? Even when God says, I will bless you, what does he say? He says, that's great, I'll return the favor. I'll make you my God. I'll give you a tithe, right? But here it's just help. But notice, it's not that Jacob prays a bad prayer. He prays a tremendously good prayer, but then what does he do next? He says, God, help me, amen. Okay, here's what we're going to do, okay? And so he says in verse um, 13, he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. This is a better understanding of the success 
in him raising up this flock for himself, right? This is just the gift he's giving to his brother, and it's substantial. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself. So he separates them into separate groups with separate servants. And he said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. Okay, so picture how Esau would have encountered this. He sends them out in waves and puts space between the waves. So the first one comes, and here's this gift, and he says, it's from your servant Jacob to his lord Esau, and he's coming behind us. And then comes another gift, and another gift. All day long as they're walking, they're encountering these separate droves. Okay, what is he trying to do? He's trying to put Esau in a better mood, right? He's trying to buy off his danger, but it's also worth mentioning here that he may be trying to compensate for the inheritance he has stolen, right? There might actually be a positive aspect of this, but even if the action is positive, the intention is self-salvation. The intention is Jacob all over again. He goes, the only way I'm going to survive this is if I do something drastic. And so he comes up with a plan to get away, okay? And so... um, Verse 19, he likewise instructed the second and the third, all who follow the droves, you shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us, for he thought, I may appease him. Now, an aside, the word he uses for appease there is the same word, uh, word group where we get the word ransom. When it uses the word gift here, it's the same word used for the grain gift in the Levitical offerings. All of this is full of worship language. And to me, it seems intentional. Okay? Jacob is trying to save himself in the full theological value of the sense through his actions against what he most fears, his brother. Okay? And so he goes about this. And what does he say? That I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterwards I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. Hopefully I'll be okay. Verse 21, so the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. That same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. Okay, so what does this say here? It says that as a last line of defense, Jacob moves his entire family across the river. What is he thinking here? He's thinking, what if Esau shows up in the middle of the night? Okay. And so he puts this very loud and tremendously dangerous to cross barrier. You know, remember we're in a pre-electrical world. When the lights go out at night, it's dark. Fording a river in the dark is not a good idea. But the sun's going down, he gets his whole family across, and then he alone comes back and stays on the Esau side, okay? Think of how he's thinking here. He's thinking, maybe, maybe I lose my life, but everyone else survives. But either way, what is he prepared for? He is prepared for combat. That's important, because that's exactly what he gets. So verse 24, Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Now, For those of you who are familiar with this story, we sometimes lightheartedly talk about this as Jacob wrestling with God. That is an inaccurate label. This is God wrestling with Jacob. Okay, when we talk about wrestling with God in prayer, whether that is a positive or true concept or not, that's not what this is. 
okay? Jacob has just prayed, God, help me. And effectively what we see here is that God wants to help Jacob and he can't because Jacob is helping himself, okay? This is Jacob's answer to prayer, even though it looks completely different, but it's also a terrifying one. It says that all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, he's jumped by a man and they wrestle till daybreak. This is an all-night-long battle royale in the dark with someone he cannot see, okay? Now, notice what it says. Uh, Verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out a joint as he wrestled with him. I want you to notice the paradox in that sentence. In the one half, it says this quote-unquote man could not prevail against Jacob. And then in the second, it says that he merely touched his hip and it went out of joint. Okay? Just the way that this is done, the author's assuming that we already know that this is more than just a man. Okay? But that makes that opening sentence even the more surprising. How can it be said that the God or that an angel or whoever this man is who's clearly not merely a man, how can it be said that Jacob was holding his own against this person? Now remember, we already know that Jacob is totally capable of tremendous acts of strength, right? He moved that boulder off the well by himself, not waiting for the crowd like would have been the usual practice. But the tension here is intentional. Okay? We're supposed to think of Jacob the wrestler and recognize that there's a total sense where this is not a fair match. That there's a handicap, if you will, at play. And so he says, okay, I've had enough of playing this game. And he touches his hip and it instantly goes out of joint. Now, I don't know if you've ever dislocated anything, but this is a tremendously painful thing. I've never had it happen, but I have seen it happen. And what happens next is a little bit blood-curdling, right? The pain that it causes is extreme. But still, Jacob is unwilling. At this point, he clearly knows something is going on, and he recognizes he's at a disadvantage, but still, he's fighting for the advantage. And so notice what it says, verse 26. And he said, let me go, for the day has broken. I want to maintain anonymity here. You're not going to see me. The sun is coming up. He says, let me go. And Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Okay, he recognizes that he's beaten. He recognizes that he's destroyed. And so he's begging for a blessing before this whoever leaves. In the, uh, in the Minor Prophets, it tells us that Jacob petitioned him with tears. So he's weeping in pain and begging this man. He just, if this is what's going down, if it's clearly God's divi- divine will, whatever's going on here, please just don't, don't stop until you bless me, okay? Um, verse 27, and he said to him, what's your name? And he said, Jacob. You should hear that for what it is. That's Jacob recognizing that he's the wrestler, that he's the conniver. That's Jacob owning up to his identity. You remember how Esau talked about Jacob's name? He deserves the name Jacob because he's stolen these two times from me with deception. This man, this God, this angel that he's wrestling with knows Jacob's name. He wants him to say it. It's like say uncle, right? Tell me your name. Own up to who you are. Identify with who you are. And he takes the name and he, he responds, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. In other words, you know who I am. So, Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, which means uh, to see the face. It means the face of God. 
Peniel, okay? Saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. In other words, he recognizes what's just happened, and he recognizes how surprising it is that he's survived it. Okay. This is something we see consistently in, um, in the Old Testament, all the way up into the book of Judges, that seeing God is a death sentence. And so he, he survives this encounter. Um, verse 31, the sun rose up on him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that's on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Now, just as an aside, let's deal with that second one. So what it says is it became practice in Jacob's family not to eat uh, the, it's not the sciatic nerve, but there's a nerve that runs right there. That's what's being referred to. Uh, the pain of the area where he's been dislocated to remember this fact. Uh, the reason I'm pointing that out to you is because we don't read about this later in the law. And so this tradition predates the law of Israel because the text predates the law of Israel. But nonetheless, as the text is being written, to this very day, this is why we don't eat this part of the meat. Okay? But the other thing I want you to notice is that he walks away wounded permanently. Okay? He now walks with a limp. This doesn't heal rightly or quickly. He limps the rest of his days. Now, why does that matter? Because what happens when the sun comes up? He faces Esau. And for the first time in his life, despite the fact that last time he ticked off his brother, he ran. Despite the fact when he made a mess with Laban, he ran. There's no more running anymore. This is what I mean when I said that God wrestled with Jacob. God puts Jacob in a place where God can be God because Jacob can't be Jacob anymore. Okay. Jacob is used to saving himself. He no longer can trust in himself. That's why the angel renames him and says, from now on, your name will be Israel. Okay. Not Jacob, but Israel. And what Israel means is to wrestle with God. And he says, for you have wrestled with men and with God. But let's be honest. There's a little bit of tongue firmly planted in cheek in that name. Okay? He's prevailed against God, yes, but how has he prevailed? In weakness and in begging and reliance upon God. For the first time in his life, it's not Jacob who's going to save Jacob. Okay. This is a scary idea. It's what Augustine and later C.S. Lewis calls a severe mercy. It's the fact that God would do something tremendously terrible and it would be in our best interest for him to do so. And so he limps for the rest of his days because that makes him reliant upon the Lord, which is great news. And so now God can answer Jacob's prayer. Now Jacob can learn what it looks like to trust the Lord because he can no longer trust in himself. And so chapter 33, verse 1 Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, and Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went before all of them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So in other words, he reorganizes everybody again, and this time it's the two servant wives in the front, and then Leah and her family, and all the way in the back, away from the danger, is her fi his favorite wife and his favorite son. Okay? But despite that, he does put himself out front, right? 
he goes and he makes himself the vanguard of his whole family, and he, um, he bows himself to the ground seven times until he comes near his brother, okay, showing him tremendous honor. But, verse 4, Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Okay? Completely unexpected. Not what we're expecting, not what Jacob is expecting. He's approaching gingerly with danger on his mind. And when his brother starts running, you have to wonder how Jacob responds. And it's hard to think he's not thinking, okay, here it comes, you know, embracing for impact. And instead, his brother embraces him and begins to weep and kiss him. And notice the end of this, and they wept. What is that? That's reconciliation, right? That's regret being shared weeping in an embrace. Verse 5, when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children, he said, who are these with you? And Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. The servants drew near and their children and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? And Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I've got enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, no, please, if I found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. You see the parallel he makes there? He recognizes that the acceptance he's found, being Jacob and renamed Israel, somehow directly impacts his relationship with his brother. And forgiveness means so much for, from his brother, he says, you've got to keep the gift. In fact, he demands it. He says, you have to take the offering. Um, verse 11, please accept my blessing, interesting choice of words, that it is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I'll go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are uh, a care to me. If they're driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and the pace of the children until I come to my Lord and seer. So Esau says, you've got to come home with me. You've got to meet my family, right, is what I can, you can imagine him saying. Come, settle. There's plenty of room for both of us in seer. And Jacob says, no, it's dangerous for us to travel. You've just got 400 men, but I've got young, I've got flocks. We can't keep up with you. Now, it's hard to tell here if Jacob is saying no for a good reason or a bad reason. He has been commanded by God to return to the land of his fathers. That doesn't count here, right? He's just finally got his life back on track. Maybe he doesn't want to detour again, okay? But there's another thing. He may actually not trust Esau, and so he's trying to you know, quietly and respectfully bow out of what he sees as a dangerous situation. It's amb ambiguous, and I would say it's intentionally ambiguous. Jacob's story is full of mystery where you can't understand his motivation, and it's hard to tell if he's doing the right thing or the wrong thing. But for now, it's just left there. But Esau pushes him, verse 15. Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of our Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house. Does that sound like a short time trip, right? It's, he doesn't just stop in Succoth. He settles in Succoth and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. So for whatever reason, he never goes to Seir. 
And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. Literally, it says Jacob came peacefully to the city of Shechem. Okay, that's ironic, even if you don't realize it right now. Jacob pulls into Shechem and he thinks, ah, now I'm safe. Now I've arrived. I've escaped the danger of my brother. I've escaped the danger of Laban. I'm back in the land. Here's a place where I can peacefully settle, where I can know the shalom of God. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of the land on which he'd pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Eloi Israel, God, the God of Israel. Okay. And so he owns up to this new identity that he's been given. And he engages again in the promised land, the worship of God, and he buys the land that he's now living on from the local residents um, in Shechem. Um, and so he's taking up a permanent residence. Okay. Now, the thing is, at this point, we enter one of the worst stories in the book of Genesis, maybe only rivaled by the story of Judah and Tamar um, in chapter 37. But here, what's going to happen, if you're not familiar, is these Shechemites have a king, have a ruler, have a chief. And that chief has a young son who's going to see the only daughter we know by name of Jacob, Dinah, and is going to rape her. And then, because he's going to find that he's still relatively affectionate for her, is going to come to Jacob's house and ask for her hand in marriage. And it, that's the best part of the story, to be honest. But what I want you to recognize here is that it's right and appropriate to say Jacob is not yet home. It's right and appropriate to say that Jacob is not yet Israel. It's right to recognize that, that Jacob has started a new life, but that doesn't mean he's a completely changed person. Okay? And what happens here is not positive. Okay, so let's read it with that being said. Now, Dinah, the daughter of Leah whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. So she goes out to meet her neighbors. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. Okay, and so it's stated here simply, but it's also stated morally. How does the author see it? As shame, right? He rapes her, he seizes her, uh, he lay with her, and he shamed her or humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamar, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now, context. Recognize here that, uh, that this reality of rape is a pre-existing condition for what happens next. Okay? That means that when Hamor, um, his father, goes to to seek a bride, there's no recompensation. There's no reconciliation. It doesn't necessarily that this is a natural thing, that this is how engagement happens in Shechem, but either way, they're willing to overlook it. It's not that big of a deal. And so he says, hey, I'm going to paraphrase here. Maybe his father doesn't know. I don't believe that's possible, but I believe basically what he says is, hey, I've got this girl who I took advantage of yesterday. As it turns out, I'm really into her. Will you go ask her father if we can keep her? That's what's going on. Now, Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, okay? It's a known thing. 
it gets out. Word is out in the community. But his sons were with the livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Now that's actually pretty striking, isn't it? Jacob hears that his only daughter was just raped, and he waits for his sons to get home. He doesn't send a messenger, which would be the normal thing to do. He just sits on it. Notice what happens next. Um, Verse 6, And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come home from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he'd done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing may not be done. So how did Jacob respond? He didn't. And now we're reminded of how they should have responded. His, his, his sons are rightly angry. They're upset. They see this for what it is, and they respond. When David's daughter is raped, he is very angry. That's what it tells us. With Jacob, it just says that he quietly sat on it, okay? What we see from Jacob is inactivity. And we'll see why in just a little bit. Right now, we don't know why. We just notice the difference here. Uh, so, and it adds here, for such a thing must not be done. That's the narrator's comment, right? The narrator wants to remind us here that this is not okay. In other words, he justifies the feelings of of Dinah's brothers. This is the right way to feel in these circumstances. But, verse 8, Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourself. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to his father and his brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask for me a great As great a bride price as a gift you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. So here Shechem speaks up and he says, I will pay anything. Now later, the brothers are going to point out that that just makes Dinah a whore. Right? He can just buy his way out of this situation and into marriage with this girl he's already taken advantage of. Um, But do you notice how outlandish this approach is? Put yourself in your shoes. Does this seem like the way this would go? Here's a known instance of rape, and the guy comes and says, hey, I'm really into your daughter. And the father says, hey, this is a great start to a beautiful relationship between your community and mine. It's clear here that there's something wrong with the Shechemites. Okay? It's clear here that the way they think about life is a failure in sexual terms. Okay? So... Notice verse 11, the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because they had defiled their sister Dinah. Jacob says nothing. His sons speak up and we're told right off the bat that what they're about to say is just a lie. Okay? They answered deceitfully. They said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised for that would be a disgrace to us. Not the rape, that's no issue at all, but uncircumcision, that's where we draw the line. He continues on. He says, Only on this condition will we agree with you that you become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we'll give our daughters to you and we'll take your daughters to ourselves and we'll dwell with you and become one people. But if you'll not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Now, two things. Notice that the sons there refer to Dinah as our daughter. They're recognizing the lack of fatherliness in their father and they just stand in the gap. They step in, but nonetheless, it doesn't change the fact that what they're doing here is deceitful. 
And so what they effectively say is, if your whole community of males are circumcised, then we can marry and be given in marriage. Then we can trade. Then we'll stick around. But if you're not willing for everyone to be circumcised, we'll take Dinah and we'll go. I want you to notice there that it says they'll take Dinah. It's very possible that when Shechem and Hamor come to the house, Dinah is back at their place. Right? They're holding the chips in this situation. It may be that that's not the case. But we'll see again this idea of having to take Dinah from their house. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, and the young man did not delay to do the thing, circumcise himself, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all of his father's house, so Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of the city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let us dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let them give our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised, and they are circumcised. Okay, I want you to notice that he saves the condition for the end. It's all positives up front. He says, there's just one little thing that we need to do. All the men need to be circumcised. And as soon as he said that, he points back to perspective. Notice what he says, verse 23. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. What he says to the city here is different than the son said to them in the house. They said, hey, intermarry with us, and we'll swap property, and you can have some of our wealth. Here, he says to the city, we'll take their wealth. It will all become ours. It doesn't really matter which one is inaccurate. Either way, it serves Shechem and Hamor, right? Either they're taking advantage of these crazy, you know, uh, tribe of Jacob, and they're just going to, you know, have, look at all this wealth that he has. It'll all be ours. And so they're lying in this proposition as well, or so that they can get Dinah, they're willing to lie to their community and soften, you know, sparkle up the deal a little bit. Either way, it's out of self-interest and deception. Verse 24, all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. And so all the leaders of the city go through the process of circumcision. Verse 25, on the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, okay, the ones who are specifically related to Dinah, not just by father, but by mother. Leah's boys, okay? Dinah is their full-blown, 100% sister. It's these guys. Notice here it says that this happened on the third day when they were sore. Every ancient Jewish commentator, who I will remind you, know from personal experience, says this is when the pain of circumcision is the worst, okay? So the author here is alluding us to what's really the plan, the plan is to immobilize all the men in the city through pain and then take advantage of that pain. And so what do they do? They took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. And so what do they do? They go in, they take out all the men, and then Hamor and Shechem, and then they grab Dinah who's at their house and takes her out of the city. Okay. So why? Why do they go about it this way? Okay, this is about survivability. If they just take vengeance on Shechem and Hamor, then they've got an angry mob. You know, you just killed our chief and his heir, right? So they just take out the whole thing. There's no one to avenge what they're going to do here. Um, but on top of that, 
it doesn't stop there. Notice verse 27. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered their city because they had defiled their sister. Notice here, it's not just Simeon and Levi. It's the rest of the sons now come in and they pillage the village. They take advantage of the fact that all of the men are dead and they take all of their property and goods. And so it says uh, in verse 28, they took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all there was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Okay, so they just ransack the city, take all the wives and the children hostage, take all the wealth as their own. Verse 30, then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. What's his great criticism here? You've put my life in danger. When other tribes hear about this, they're going to wipe us off the map. That's all he can think about here. And I will add that there's something about not properly, justly engaging with injustice that leaves you prone to this type of response. But nonetheless, here it is, and so he makes this criticism. He says, my numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. You hear in all of the singular nouns in there? Me, me, my, I, not us even. All he's thinking about is the danger of Jacob, right? Verse 31, but they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Notice there, there's no resolve. There's no answers. We'll get to something in just a second, but when you stop there, what you have is a mess, okay? Where is the heroes in this chapter? There aren't any, okay? We can recognize that the anger of Simeon and Levi and the other brothers is appropriate. We cannot stand behind the fact that they ransack a city and take all of these women and children as captives. We may even be able to say, well, at least Shechem did the right thing and he wanted to set things right. At least his motivation wasn't merely power or he, you know, repented of his actions, but he didn't really, right? He didn't do anything to fix it. He just tried to ignore it and move forward and get more for Shechem because he was attracted to Dinah and wanted more of her. We can't stand with Jacob because he does nothing. Nothing about, nothing, and we find out why he does nothing, because he's afraid. He doesn't take vengeance for his daughter because it's too dangerous, There are no heroes in this chapter. And I want you to notice that God is absent from this chapter as well. Okay? We do not hear that God called about this plan. We do not hear anything. In fact, maybe you might go, but that's the problem, Justin. That doesn't change the fact that Dinah was raped. Where was God when that happened? In the words of C.S. Lewis, in his book on pain, he says this, He says, when souls become wicked, they will certainly use this possibility to hurt one another, and this perhaps accounts for four-fifths of the sufferings of men. It's men, not God, who have produced racks, whips, prisons, slavery, guns, bayonets, and bombs. It's by human avarice or human stupidity, not by the churlishness of nature, that we have poverty and overwork. When souls become wicked... Oh, that's the same quote twice. Um... But this is what we have here. This is us. This isn't God's problem. This is humanity. Why is it here? Well, obviously, one of the reasons is because it happened. Right? And the Bible records it because it's, it happens. But the other reason it's here is because it sets up for what happens next. 
Look at chapter 35, verse 1. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. First off, is it not striking that it's here, after all of this, that God appears to Jacob again? If we had our way with the text, wouldn't we want God to come in and say, That's enough. I don't care if I have to raise it up from rocks. I will do this differently. It's striking here, God's tremendous grace, that even here, he's still not given up on Jacob. But the second thing I want you to notice is how this invitation is going to read to Jacob now. Okay? We saw vestiges of Jacob's saving himself, of dealing with the issue. Now we see the other side of the issue, but it's really the same thing. There it was activity trying to appease Esau. Here it's inactivity trying to save his own skin. But it still has nothing to do with God. He has become Israel, but in chapter 34, all we get is Jacob. Right? Even the narrator refers to him in this chapter merely as Jacob. Now God says, come back to Bethel. And notice how different Jacob's response is this time. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. What is he recognizing? He's recognizing that they have to repent. Put away all those foreign gods. Throw them out. When he says purify yourselves and change your clothes, it's recognizing that what just happened is staining, right? And you can't just walk into God's presence in clothes covered in blood with the spoils of your enemies and say that everything's fine. He says, no, there has to be this outward symbol of the inward reality. We need, to, we need to be cleansed. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I make there an altar to God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. First off, I want you to notice that this is a family decision because all the hands are soiled right? This isn't just Jacob repenting. Can you imagine that despite the, um, the high that Levi and Simeon may have gone through in this great crusade and their terrible plan, that they have regrets, that these are things they're going to be haunted by? And so it's a collective family. It's like, look guys, we're a mess. We got to go back to Bethel. We got to go back to the house of God. We've got to start over. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Now, we're not told why they give the rings, but I assume that this is part of the treasure that they took in their pillage, and they recognize that they have to get rid of this as well. This is blood money, right? But either way, um, they do that. They bury them under the terebinth tree, verse 5. They journeyed. Uh, as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Who protected Jacob and his family? God did. He was totally capable of doing it after Dinah was raped, before they took it into their own hands. And despite the fact that they take it into their own hands and commit this atrocity, God still protects them. And so Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which was in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him, and there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel. Not just Bethel, the house of God, but the God of the house of God, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. She called his name, uh, so he called his name Alon Bakuth, 
Okay, uh, Alon Bakuth means the oath of oak of weeping. But I want you to notice how rapid fire this is. There are so many deaths in this chapter. First, there's the entire village of Shechem, and now there's Deborah, a character who we've never met, who's never been named, and we're told is the nurse of Rebecca. Why are we talking about this death? Because Rebecca is already dead. This is a subtle way of recognizing one primary loss in the big deception that's already happened. And so now his, his nursemaid is as close as he gets to his mom, and even she's gone. And so he buries her. Um, uh, and so, verse 9, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padanaram and blessed him, and God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. God reaffirms here. He says, You truly are Jacob, but you're Jacob no longer. Now you are Israel. Uh, so he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he'd spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it, and Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. And so God appears to him, and he reiterates the blessings. And he reiterates the name change. And then we get another death. Verse 16, they journeyed from Bethel, and when they were still some dis distance from Epath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. When her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you'll have another son. The midwife there is referring to the prayer encoded in the name of her firstborn. Joseph means another son. Right? And she says, hey, I know this is hard, but it's a boy, just like you asked for. And what happens next? 18, and as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni. Okay, Ben-Oni means the son of my sorrow. The reason is because this is the son that she asked for, and it's the one that's going to take her life. God opened her womb and gave her a child, and the first thing she did is ask for another, and it ends up being the one that kills her. And so she says, call him son of my sorrow, Ben-Oni. And Jacob interferes, and he renames him Benjamin, which means son to my right, my, my most important son, my final valuable, right? The son of my favorite wife and my youngest son. We'll see how that plays out later. Um, and so, verse 19, Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Epaphrath, that is Bethlehem. So another death. Verse 20, Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It's the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. Do you notice the um, transition there? Suddenly the name the narrator gives for Jacob is Israel. Okay. Notice here that it doesn't mean a removal of difficulty in his life. But he does manage the difficulty differently. He doesn't Jacob it, right? So Rachel is dead, and verse 22, while Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Okay, Reuben is one of Leah's sons. Bilhah is Rachel's concubine. Okay, the last living non-son connection to Rachel. And it says here that he slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah. Okay, now we know later on that this sometimes had political agenda that this was done specifically to make a statement, 
And so when Absalom takes advantage of his father's concubines, it's because he's now the ruler of the roost and he's making a statement. Um, it may also be here that he's trying to soil Bilhah because Leah is still pretty low down the roster and he just realizes a way to make Leah more esteemed by making the servant of Rachel less esteemed, right? Leah would be the next one in line. Whatever reason it is, all it tells us here is that Israel heard of it. Now, I heard a commentator point out once that it's a good thing Jacob didn't hear of it, and Israel did. But we really don't know. It's just set there because it will be dealt with, but not till Genesis 49. Not until Jacob is dying will he bring this up and address it, okay? But nonetheless, I want you to notice that there's still massive dysfunction in this family. It's setting us up for the story of these sons, which is the next chapter in Genesis. Um, but let's finish off here. Uh, now, the sons of Jacob were 12, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulon, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. Okay, and so here it's starting to set up for the next story. When we get to chapter 37 next week, it'll say these are the generations of Jacob and these will be the men that it talks about, okay? But here they're listed, not in genealogical order, not in birth order, but organized by their mothers. And then verse 27, Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kirith Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. So he finally comes to where his father is still alive, and he settles with him. And it tells us here in 28, now the days of Isaac were 180 years, just as an aside, when he thought he was dying and had to come up with that whole plan to give Esau the blessing. It was 60 years later that he actually passed away. Okay? Verse 29, and Isaac breathed his last and he died and he was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his son Esau and Jacob buried him. Now what's going on in all of this passage? It's the same thing that continues in chapter 36. He's closing up loose ends because he's going to move on to the next story. And so we find, just like we found the death of Abraham's wife, uh, Sarah, we find the death of Rebekah. We find the de uh, death, technically, of Rebekah's servant, but that adds to the horror of what's happened. We find the death of Isaac, okay? Um, we find the death of Rachel. All of these things, it's closing off these stories. We get a full genealogy of his kids because they're going to be the main players in the story. The only loose end at this point is Esau. Esau's been running parallel. Remember, he met. He went back to Seir. That's the last we've heard of him. But there's been no genealogy of Esau. And in the same way, before we got the story of Isaac, we got the genealogy of Ishmael. Here, before we get the story of Jacob's sons, we get the genealogy of Esau. Uh, and I want to go ahead and just read the whole thing through. There's not much more to it than a genealogy. I have one thing to say, and then we'll close for the night. Chapter 36. These are the generations of Esau. That is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Oholibama, uh, the daughter of Anna, and the daughter of Azibion the Hivite, Bashmath, the Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nabioth. And Ada bore to Esau Eliphaz, Bashmath bore Rule, and Oholibama bore Jeush, Jalim, and Korah, and these are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. 
Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all of his beasts, and all of his property that he acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of the sojournings could not support them because of their livestock, so Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. Okay, those three names again, Seir, Esau, Edom, all talking about the same people group and the same person. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz, the son of Adah, the wife of Esau, Reuel, the son of Bashmath, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Taman, Omar, Zepho, Getnam, and Kenaz. Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Adah, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Reuel, Nathan, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah, and these are the sons of Bashmath. Uh, I should really decide one way to say that. Bashemeth, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholibama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau, Jeshua, Jalem, and Korah. Okay, now there's some repeated stuff in there because it starts with just his family and when they were born before they moved to Seir, and then we get the actual genealogy, and now we get the chiefs, okay? The tribes, if you will, that came. And so these are the chiefs of the sons of Esau, the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chiefs Taman, Omar, Zepho, Kenes, Korah, Gadam, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Adah. These are the sons of Reuel, Esau's son, the chiefs Nathan, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the chiefs of Reuel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Beshemeth, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholibama, Esau's wife, the chief Jewish, Jalem, and Korah. And these are the chiefs born of Aholibama, his daughter Anna, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. Now let me pause there just to give us a little ray of hope, okay? Why is this important? Because these are the people who which Israel has to deal, okay? This is the structure of the closest tribe and the one they interact with the most out of their family for the rest of their history. Those who read this book for the first time are getting connected with their day and age, okay? He continues here, these are the sons of Seir, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land. So now he says, here's the genealogy of the people that Esau took over, okay? He inhabits Seir, but there's pre-existing occupants there and we're told about them. Lotan, Shobel, Zibion, Anna, Disor, Ezer, and Dishan, these are the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Hemam. Lotan's sister was Timnah. These are the sons of Shobal, Alvan, Mathna, Ebal, Shepel, and Onam. These are the sons of Zibion, Aya, and Anna. He is the Anna who found the hot springs in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of Zibion, his father. You see the personal note there? Why does that exist? Because the original audience knows this hot spring and knows the story. And so the author connects the dots for them because it's a real document written to real people about real history. Okay? He continues here, verse um, 25, these are the children of Anna, Dishon, and Aholibama, the daughter of Anna. These are the sons of Dishon, Hemdan, Eshban, Ethran, and Sharan. There's a theme there. These are the sons of Ezer, Bilhan, Zavan, and Achan. These are the sons of Dishan, Uz, and Aaron. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs of Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anna, Dishan, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chief in the land of Zir. The final section here are the kings that come from the land of Edom specifically before Israel has their first king. So this walks through the timeline of Edom all the way up to the dynasty of Israel. 
Okay, And it says here, These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bela the son of Beor reigned in Edom, the name of his city being Dinabah. Bela died, and Jobab the son of Zerah, Bozran, reigned in his place. Jobab died, and Husham of the land of the Temanites reigned in his place. Husham died, and Hadad the son of Badad, who defeated the Midianans in the country of Moab, reigned in his place, the name of his city being Avith. Hadad died, and Samla of Mascara reigned in his place. Place. Samla died, and Shul of Raboth of the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shaul died, and Belhanan of the son of Achbor reigned in his place. Belhanan the son of Achbor died, and Hedar reigned in his place, and the name of his city being Pau. His wife's name was Methabel, the daughter of Matrid, the daughter of Mezahab. Now just as an aside, do you notice here that all of these kings are unrelated? This is surprisingly different than most other eastern dynasties. It's not the son of and the son of. In fact, they're not even from the same hometown. It sounds like here their kings are elected officials. It's just unique. It's not something we see anywhere else. And it testifies to the reality of this place just because if it was made up, it'd be just like everywhere else. Continues, verse 40, these are the names of the chiefs of Esau according to their clans and their dwelling places by the names of the chiefs, Timnah, Avla, Jetha, Oholibama, Ella, Pinion, Kenaz, Taman, Mizbar. Magdiel and Eram, these are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. Now, why is this here to close tonight? As I already said, it's because these names actually mean something to the original audience of Genesis. They know these tribes, they know this history, they know the kings, and this just helps them connect the dots with what has happened in Genesis and what's happening in their life. But there is a second reason. If you'll remember, Esau was given promises. His, God, uh, his father couldn't give him the same blessings that he planned on, but he still said, you're going to go to the land of Seir, and you will be blessed, and there will be kings, and we see all of that come to pass, which is once again leading us to look back to Jacob and wonder, if God was faithful with Esau, will he also be faithful with Jacob? Okay, And so it sets us up for the next stage. Now, I'm going to pray in just a second, but here's the good news. We are back on track which is why we just read through chapter 36 in its entirety. Um, what that means is we will finish the book of Genesis the week before Easter, okay? And we will start the book of Exodus the week, uh, the Monday following, sorry, the Sunday following Easter, okay? So that's where we're going. Let's pray. Father, I don't know if everybody resonates more with Jacob than with Abraham or Isaac, but but I know what it's like to need to be given a limp. I know what it's like to be made dependent upon you for, for my good. I know what it's like to experience your severe mercy. And I know that Jacob, even though he had to learn it the hard way, even though he didn't learn it perfectly the first time and it was an ongoing life lesson, he was so grateful for your goodness. And I know that's true of me as well. And I just want to ask in honesty again, Lord, that, that you would do whatever's necessary to get our attention, that you would do whatever's necessary to draw us to yourself, that you do whatever is necessary to break down our self-reliance um, and our independence so that we can know the joy of having a God who saves us, who provides for us, who protects us. I pray, Lord, that it would be true that we all, like Israel, would have God as our conqueror. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.